This is the Cancer Survivor Guide. I'm Penny Johnston, a fellow cancer survivor. In this podcast, you'll meet Sarah McKinnon, a psychologist who works with patients diagnosed with cancer in the Why Wait for Wellness program. Being diagnosed with cancer is a kick in the guts. No two ways about it. And anyone who can get you to listen will tell you just how bad chemo or radiation or surgery is going to be for you. But is it possible that there's some allied health professionals who might be able to help you get through your treatment in a way that might even leave you in better shape than you started? Running at Ballarat Health Services is a program called Why Wait for Wellness. And if you take the advice of our three professionals, a psychologist, a dietitian, and an exercise physiologist, you might end up feeling better than you ever expected. Our health professionals are here to bust some crazy cancer myths like, does sugar cause cancer? This is probably one of the most common myths that comes up and it's probably the number one thing that we cover in the group and it creates a lot of discussion. The answer is there is no credible evidence to support the fact that sugar promotes tumour growth. Did I deserve to get cancer? No. A lot of people ask themselves that question, am I being punished for something? Is there something I did? And think that they maybe did something to deserve it. And I think that, you know, if we knew what caused cancer, we'd be able to prevent it. And in the situations where we do know more information about what the causes are, we do try to prevent it. But unfortunately for lots of people, it's just bad luck. And could exercising make my cancer move further around my body? No. Is again the short answer. Exercise can help improve the immune system, which essentially helps fight the cancer cells. In this podcast, you're going to meet a psychologist and find out just how helpful thinking about these things, mindfulness, goal setting, sleep, exercise, diet could possibly be. Sarah McKinnon is a psychologist. My main focus is working with people in oncology and in supporting people during and after their cancer treatment. Sarah, you're one of the people behind the Why Wait for Wellness program. What was important to you about setting this program up? We were looking at how do we help people stay as well as they possibly can during their treatment. People are surviving cancer more. Our treatments are getting better and better all the time, but we know that they're not a walk in the park. The treatments have been likened to climbing Mount Everest or running a marathon. We don't expect people to do those sorts of physical tasks without a certain amount of training and preparation, but we do that to cancer patients every day. Our Why Wait for Wellness program is our answer to trying to do some form of prehabilitation. Prehabilitation, I guess, is trying to get in there and prevent long-term health issues from occurring. We look at nutrition and exercise and stress management as ways of trying to maintain health and well-being during cancer treatment and hopefully prevent some of those longer-term health issues that can come about during cancer treatment. Sarah, as a psychologist, how do you help people through a cancer diagnosis? The biggest part I find is normalising their responses, that any kind of reaction is okay and that is normal because this is a, a life before this moment and a life after this moment kind of an event. It does force people to stop and think about what life means to them or even just that I could die from this. Even if their cancer is one that has a really high rate of survival, it's still a very confronting experience. Do you find that you can make a difference? 
I hope so. I really hope I do. But I think that what I see a lot is people who are incredibly brave and often facing up to things that most of us put our head in the sand and pretend is never going to happen. It's a real privilege to support people with exploring those thoughts and feelings. And I often find that I learn just as much as they do and just appreciate what we have. My initial approach is to allow people to just express how they're feeling and think about their responses and normalise those because everything is normal in that context. But also to think about how they can help themselves to focus on what's really important to them at that point in time and, and what sorts of things are in their control that they can do to help themselves feel better and feel like they are coping with what's happening and make some changes of things that might be important to them to make changes either during or after their treatment. It's not only your reaction but the people close to you's reaction as well that you have to deal with. It's brought cancer into the lives of everybody who knows and loves them. It makes people around them stop and think about what's important to them too. That can be a really great thing, but it can also be something that makes them feel responsible in some ways for other people's distress. Some people, they talk about how they wouldn't wish it on their worst enemy, but they also wouldn't change it because it has made them think more clearly about what is important to them and how they want their lives to be. And without the cancer, they may never have done that. One of the good things about cancer is that we're surviving, which is exactly what we want, but it also means we need to adjust to a new normal. People talk about wanting life to get back to normal after they've had their cancer treatment or feeling pressure from their loved ones in particular for things to get back to normal. And I find that there are periods of time where there are peaks in distress or in things that you need to adjust to. And obviously initial diagnosis is one of those. Another time that we find is a bit of a peak for people is that period of time when they've just completed their treatments. They don't necessarily know how well the treatment has worked yet. They're sort of in a little bit of a limbo land that they're not actively having treatment anymore but they're still experiencing the side effects. They haven't had the follow-up tests yet to say how helpful the treatment has been. They're sort of thinking about how they go about getting back into their lives in terms of their careers or their roles with their family in terms of their social roles or their family roles or friendship roles, you know, all of those sorts of things that might have been put on hold while they were going through treatment. And just feeling at this pressure of wanting things to be normal again. But really, things aren't going to be the same after you've had the experience of a diagnosis of cancer because it is one of those pivotal life experiences. So we talk to people about what that new normal looks like in terms of what do they want to take from their life before and keep and try and reinstigate or keep going but also what would they like to be different and there's quite a large group of people who really don't want their life to be the same as it was before it does shake things up a bit and realize that actually I don't want to work in that career anymore I've always thought about doing this so maybe I'm going to go back to uni or maybe I'm going to go and try my hand at learning the guitar or doing the things that I always thought was a one-day thing that I might do, I'm actually going to actually do those things. Empowering people to take those steps to create the life that they want to live. This experience is something that people often sit back and go, well, I now know that this is not so important. So perhaps people who worked really, really hard before their diagnosis and didn't have a lot of time for family and friends and thought that they'll get to do that on when they go on holidays or they'll get to do that when they retire 
actually think, well, well, it doesn't make sense for me to put that off until later. I need to make time to be able to do those things. Working as hard as I was before the diagnosis isn't the way I want to live my life anymore. Anyone with a cancer diagnosis is familiar with anxiety. Anxiety is something that actually has been around since we evolved into the humans that we are now. It's something that is a very adaptive response and we don't want to not experience some level of anxiety or stress response in our lives, but we are more inclined to recognise when anxiety becomes a problem. People are more inclined to speak about it. But the interesting thing that I find is that people get anxious about anxiety. People are referred for being anxious because other people don't know how to help and so they're anxious about other people's anxiety and it gets into this sort of anxiety cycle. But anxiety is a normal experience and I think in the oncology population in particular there are points of time along the way where we might be more concerned about people who are not anxious than people who are. For example, going into a pretty major surgery, if somebody's not anxious about that at all, we might be a little bit concerned that they're not fully comprehending exactly what it is that's about to happen to them. There's been some research looking at anxiety and how it impacts recovery, post-operative recovery, and what they found was that moderate levels of anxiety is actually a, a really helpful and adaptive thing, and people who were experiencing a moderate level of anxiety pre-surgery did better post-surgery. So they needed less pain management and were in hospital for a shorter stay than people who were not anxious or people who were highly anxious. Anxious. So there's a level of it there that's protective and helpful and it's about how do we help people be okay with that level of anxiety and how do we help manage the anxiety for the people who have that really high level of anxiety and help them settle that down. It's always good when you've had the surgery, all the scans and you realise, yes, I was worrying unnecessarily, but you also have to acknowledge that you couldn't have stopped me worrying in the first place. No, I don't think so. And I think anxiety is triggered by those what ifs and by not knowing. If we don't know the answer to something, our mind is going to try and fill in those gaps. And often when it fills in that gap, it fills in that gap with the worst case scenario. Some of us are born to be more anxious than others and a little bit more likely to think out the worst case scenario. So we might be overestimating the likelihood of a bad outcome or underestimating our ability to cope with a bad outcome then that makes us more inclined to think that worst case scenario when we don't have the information that helps us to settle the anxiety. Those sort of unknown times between having had a scan and getting the results, there's this real period of time. I've heard patients actually call it scanxiety. There's a normal kind of increase in the what-ifs and our brain has that tendency to try to fill those what-ifs with information that maybe isn't that helpful and some people even say even when the news isn't good it's still better than the not knowing because then you at least know what you're dealing with. Do you teach people to recognise what's going on for them and how best to deal with whatever that emotion is? We help them to realise that it is about that unknown. Effectively, it's your brain doing its job. So our brains are wired to detect threat. They're wired to keep us vigilant to danger and to be thinking and anticipating some kind of danger. And when you have experienced a cancer diagnosis and you've had that experience of sitting in front of a doctor and being told that your test results indicate you've got cancer, then you're primed to think that's going to happen again. So your brain is in a situation where you, you go to have the scans and there's a possibility that 
the result is going to indicate that the cancer is back. That's why you're having the scans. So we can't challenge that. We can't say to people, oh, you know, oh, well, what's the likelihood? The likelihood's not very high. And we can't kind of go down our traditional cognitive behavioural therapy path of assuming that that's a, a rational or catastrophic thought that's unreasonable because it actually is a reasonable one to have. Because you've already been told you've got cancer, right? Yeah. So it doesn't get much worse. And there's a reason they're doing the scan. The reason is to make sure that you don't. So that means there's a possibility that it is there. Instead, what we talk to people about at that point is managing those thoughts, focusing on the moment that they're in now. So worrying about something that you don't have control over and that you can't problem solve isn't going to change the outcome. That period of time between having had a scan and getting the results, for example, worrying about what the results are is not going to change the outcome of those results. All it's going to do is make you feel really bad. It's going to make you potentially not sleep. It's going to impact how you're engaging with your family. It's going to potentially impact whether you've got an appetite and feel like eating. It's going to have a negative effect on you if you are just focusing on the worry and on the thing that's not in your control. So we help people to be okay with the thought being there because there is the possibility, but just focus on what they're doing right now and I'll get the results when I see whoever your oncologist is. Thank you, Mind, for reminding me that that's coming up. I don't need to worry about that right now. I'm going to focus on what it is that I'm doing and re-shift your attention back to the task that you've got in front of you. It takes a fair bit of effort and a fair bit of discipline and we do have methods to help train people to be able to do that during that period of time until they've got the information. Sometimes as a cancer patient it is difficult to sleep. You are mostly anxious and you do have thoughts that run away from you. How do you help people get sleep? So first of all I guess we help them work out what might be the reasons they're having the difficulty sleeping. So sometimes it could be medication related. Some medications have impact on sleep so the steroid based medications. They're really great at helping with the nausea but not so great at helping people be able to sleep. The hormone based treatments can create hot flushes at night and people often talk about getting up and needing to go to the toilet during the night or getting up to throw the blankets off and cool down and then waking up freezing cold and having to put the blankets back on again and that just disturbing their sleep in general. We look at what might be one of those factors but we also look at whether or not there's other things happening in terms of I guess worry is obviously a big part and if you're awake in the middle of the night and there aren't the normal distractions or people to talk to that's the prime time for worries to take hold and back and forth in your mind and sometimes get even bigger than they need to be because things do seem bigger and worse at night. So we look at what sort of things are happening for people in general but in the group program we just talk about behavioural sort of sleep management strategies. So we talk about making sure that they've got a good sleep environment so that their bed is comfortable, that there's a reasonable temperature in their room, there isn't too much light or limiting their engagement with the blue light in iPhones and tablets tricks our brains into thinking that it's daytime. So if you're sitting on your phone or your iPad right up until you go to bed, then your brain might not be ready to actually go to sleep yet because it doesn't realise that it's nighttime. Trying to create a bit of a buffer between those sorts of activities and going to bed and going to sleep. Being aware of what your sleep-wake cycle is. Being able to catch that sleepy wave when you get sleepy. I'm probably one of the worst people for sitting down at night time and relaxing after my children have gone to bed and doing the nod off in front of the TV. If I don't go to bed at that point in time then I wake up again and then it's another sort of 
hour to an hour and a half before I'm ready to go to sleep again. Limiting the amount of caffeine that you're drinking is another thing. So we just look at the the general sort of behavioural strategies around sleep. It's always very interesting in the group context because as soon as you start talking about some of the strategies that are helpful with sleep, that's when people really start to open up and talk about, oh yes, well I've tried this and I've tried that and you can realise actually sleep is probably more of an issue than they initially said it was because clearly they've tried a few things that we talk about in the programs. One of the things that people find the most surprising is this idea of getting out of bed if you're not back asleep within a certain period of time. Our brain forms associations really easily and if we're spending a lot of time in bed awake and worrying then our bed starts to become associated with being awake and worrying rather than being asleep. So we want to try and break that association. One of our strategies around that is to, if you're not asleep in the first place or back asleep within half an hour of waking up or of getting into bed, then you need to probably get up. But go and do something that will just break that cycle a little bit and go back to bed when you feel sleepy. We try to tell people to avoid doing anything that would engage them too much. So don't pick up a really good book that's a really great page turner that you're going to force your eyelids to stay open to keep reading to the end of the chapter. Don't turn on the TV and have a a show that you're going to keep fighting the sleepiness to keep watching the end of. Do something that's quite boring and so that you're prepared to actually go straight back to bed as soon as you notice yourself feeling sleepy again. One of the interesting things about your course is that you talk about goal setting. Well, we talk about in the context of all of the information that we deliver about healthy eating and about exercise and about sleep. And we talk about trying to make changes, starting small and building from there as opposed to making sweeping changes with how they're doing things. A lot of people kind of come in and they hear all of this information and they get overwhelmed and think that all just sounds too hard. We talk about picking one or two things they can connect with a reason for making a change so why did they come why are they interested in making a health behavior change in the first place and often it's because they want to be able to have the energy to play with their children or their grandchildren or walk around the block or they might have some very specific things that they want to achieve and so we talk about how to start small and build from there with setting their goals. It's really about coming to where they're at and working with them to achieve what they want to as opposed to telling them that they need to make changes or putting our expectations on them. If you're concentrating on a goal that gives you something to look forward to, how does that help cancer treatment? It gives them something that they've got some control over, I think. A lot of people do turn to things like looking at their diet during cancer because it is something that they have some level of control over. If we can give them the information that is the helpful information about that and help them to start working with one aspect of that that's going to be helpful, then that's where we start. One of the other things you talk about a lot is patients' rights and advocacy. Now, that's a new thing for a lot of people. We just talk to people about remembering that they can ask questions when they go to see their doctor and ask for things to be clarified if they don't understand. The research suggests that people don't retain a lot of information from their medical consultations. It's in the area of around 30%. And when people are feeling stressed and anxious, it may actually even be less than that. Our brain doesn't work properly when we're stressed. We want people to feel 
as empowered as they can be and get all of the information that they need because it's that information that can sometimes help to manage the anxiety in between their medical appointments. So if we can help them to feel more confident to ask questions, write their questions down before they go in to see their doctors, write the answers to those questions down or ask the doctor to write the answers to those questions down so they've got it to refer back to because they'll come out of seeing the doctor and they might then have a daughter or a son or somebody in their lives who turns around and says, so what did your doctor say? And did you ask them about this? And did you ask them about that? And if they haven't written it down, then they often won't remember. Or the other thing that can happen is it could be several weeks and and in that recovery phase, it can be several months between seeing your specialist. So we also encourage people to take somebody with them to their appointments and the doctors encourage that as well, which is a really good thing because if you've got two sets of ears listening, then you're more likely to remember different things. (laughs) Between the two of you, remember most of what is said. And also just to remember that it's actually okay to ask any question. There's no such thing as a silly question. If they need that information, they need that information. If it's information that the doctor doesn't have the answer to or they don't think it's relevant, then at least that's been resolved. The other thing is about things like if you're expecting results or expecting an appointment or you know, you've been told that that somebody would call you about something and you haven't heard and you're a bit anxious about what that means, don't hesitate to call to follow it up because our system whilst we try to do the very best things do fall through the cracks unfortunately sometimes somebody might have tried to call and you didn't answer and we talk to people about not hesitating to make contact and follow up on those things if they need to. Sarah McKinnon from the Why Wait for Wellness program run by the Ballarat Health Services designed especially to help cancer patients. But don't take our word for it. Take it from somebody who's consulted with one of these allied health professionals or attended the Why Wait for Wellness program. I was a little bit dubious at the start. It's all been very positive and I feel like a million bucks compared to what I was. Having some strategies put in place that I can use to get through when I'm feeling really low, that's, I guess, the best thing about it. Definitely say it was helpful in every way, even if you don't think it is at the start. I found out about nutrition and, and sleep and exercise. We did talk about exercise and it was good yeah, to interact and see. And you gave us some nice recipes as well. Psychologists have given me some great coping mechanisms to help, especially when times are tough, because they are tough through chemo. Oh, it's word going. It is word going a lot because you always learn to think it's worth it. It helps me muscles come back. Having the dietitians and uh, the physio people working together helps me to be able to get back to strength, eat right, and then just build up the nutrition I need to go through chemo. Putting to bed some myths that you'll hear and you read about cancer and what you can and can't eat, especially at a time when I was losing a lot of weight, was really beneficial to me because I was able to put weight back on after those discussions and different changes I was able to make in my diet about some of the myths about some of the foods that I was dodging, thinking that they fed cancer or they led to more cancer. And being reassured meant that I was able to really broaden my diet, which has helped me to put weight back on during chemo, which is not always easy to do. And helped with fatigue heaps. Even just being able to talk to you about things is help as well. So when I do get really anxious, anyone that's going through cancer would have those times. Just being reassured that it's a normal sort of thing and that I'm not alone and it's very important to take care of your mental health.
while you're battling this disease? The discipline of eating. Once you're living on your own, you tend to slip. You don't tend to pay the right attention to what you should be doing. The dietitians helped me to get back on the right track. They helped me with some good advice on that. You'll never regret it, but you must follow the, what they tell you. You've got to have a discipline to go along with whatever they're recommending. Follow that advice, whatever it is. I started it in the middle of my chemo and it definitely helped. So you should start as soon as possible. You have a tendency when you're going through chemo to just feel that you're too tired to do anything. There is that tendency to feel that chemo fatigue, I think it's called, and you just think you can't do anything. But if you seek out an exercise physiologist, they understand that sort of reluctance and also the fact that you do feel tired and will start you very gently. The Why Wait for Wellness program operates from Ballarat Health Services, but there might be a similar program that's close to you. I can highly recommend checking it out. If you've enjoyed this podcast, there are two more from the Why Wait for Wellness team. Exercise physiologist Tracy Duggan talks about exercise programs for cancer patients. And dietitian Amy Smith talks about a diet to keep you healthy through the highs and lows of your cancer treatment. And in our Cancer Survivor Guide series, there are podcasts about chemotherapy, radiation and some of the other help that might be available for you. I'm Penny Johnston, a fellow cancer survivor, and if you found this podcast helpful, why not follow up on some of their suggestions? Music.